Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, a church does something that you don't often see churches do. It apologizes for its past. We'll share why. We also look more closely at the $100 million evangelistic ad campaign called He Gets Us. And we note the passing of an evangelical elder statesman, Steve Douglas, who helped crew, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ, grow into one of the largest ministries in the world, is dead at age 77. We'll have an appreciation. We begin today with news that Celebration Church's founders have reopened a defamation lawsuit against their former church. Yeah, at Celebration, a Jacksonville, Florida megachurch has, you know, kind of been on ministry watch for months now. And uh, the founders of that church, uh, Stovall Weems and his wife, Carrie, are suing the church, the trustees of the church, and a lawyer uh, that was involved uh, in an earlier case calling a report that a law firm issued defamatory. Uh, the 22-page report accused the Weems of fraud, self-absorption, and spiritual abuses. The investigation was conducted by the Nelson Mullins Law Firm, which is a large nationally respected law firm, and it portrayed the former pastor, the uh, Soval Weems as nar- narcissistic and mentally unstable. The report shows the Weems compensation, travel, uh, staff expenses, and expense accounts comprising approximately 10% of the church's total budget. The couple maintained their innocence, and since terminating their role, they've continued their ministry separate from Celebration Church. Yeah, in fact, this is the second time that the Weems have sued the church. The first lawsuit was thrown out by a judge. We reported on that a couple of weeks ago. The judge said that this was a matter of church governance that should not be adjudicated in civil courts. Our next story also involves a high-profile church. Hillsong's latest annual report reveals that the megachurch has seen a significant revenue drop in recent years. Yeah, Hillsong's uh, latest annual report says that uh, it's bringing in about $17 million less than it did two years ago. That's a drop almost 20%, uh, due at least in part to a series of controversies that the church has sparked in recent years. Additionally, the document shows that the church posted a $1.2 million loss in 2020 and a $4.1 million loss in 2021. The decline comes as former leader and founder Brian Houston faces charges of covering up his late father's alleged sex crimes. Yeah, Houston has vowed to fight these charges, which are expected to be heard in a Sydney courtroom in December. He has yet to enter a plea, but has indicated that he will plead not guilty. Uh, The church also denies claims of fraudulent and unethical behavior in a defense filed to the federal court. Uh, Hillsong is entangled in a fair work case uh, filed by a former employee, Natalie Moses. She alleges that the church unjustly suspended her from her finance department position after she repeatedly expressed concerns about financial misconduct and questionable expenditures inside of Hillsong. Now, while we're on the subject of megachurches, there's news from Matt Chandler and the Village Church, which is a megachurch in the Dallas area. 
Yeah, Matt Chandler has hinted on social media that he plans to return to the pulpit at the Village Church soon, uh, ending a leave of absence that was instituted by the church's board in August after he admitted having a social media relationship with a woman who is not his wife. The church's board of elders suspended Chandler in August, on August 28th to be precise, after an internal investigation by a private law firm concluded that that he had violated the church's social media policy by having an online relationship with a woman, behavior that the board deemed to be inappropriate for someone in his position. Although the messages were not romantic or sexual in nature, Matt Chandler admitted it was unguarded and unwise for him to have the relationship and that the frequency and familiarity of his communications with the woman was wrong. Warren, let's look at one more story before the break, and this one is also about a megachurch, but this story is a bit different than most of the stories we cover. Yeah, it really is, um, which is one of the reasons it captured my attention, and I wanted to report on it here at Ministry Watch. Uh, It's about a Mississippi church called Broadmoor Baptist Church uh, that recently announced that a former youth pastor there had participated in an abusive sexual relationship with a minor back in the 1980s. Um, They published a detailed account on their website of this story. Uh, According to the report that they published, the pastor later paid for the victim's therapy after she signed a non-disclosure agreement. Now, the victim claimed that the former youth pastor, David Ingram is his name, began grooming her when she was 12 years old uh, for a sexual relationship and that that relationship started when she was 15 and continued while he was the youth pastor at Broadmoor Baptist Church. The church published the allegations under a link titled, A Statement About Our Past, on its website. In the disclosure, the church shared that upon investigating, they had heard consistent accounts verifying the victim's disclosures and trauma uh, and trauma care, including testimonies from three of her counselors, and believed them to be true. Yeah, the statement confirmed that the survivor, her husband, and two of her counselors had attended a meeting a few years ago in which they actually confronted Ingram and his wife about the abuse. And in that meeting, Ingram offered a general, nonspecific apology and, according to the counselors, did not attempt to refute or deny anything presented in that meeting. And following the meeting, Ingram made a sizable payment, uh, in fact, more than one sizable payment, to cover the victim's therapy, but only after she signed a non-disclosure agreement, or NDA. The church expressed its grief and love for Ingram, his family, and the victim and her family. They said that they would defend the victim and assist with certain costs if Ingram sued for breach of the NDA. Yeah, and I should add that David Ingram, the alleged abuser, has remained in ministry for more than 40 years and is currently the pastor of a church less than an hour away from Broadmoor Baptist Church. Now, Warren, have you ever heard of a church doing something like this? Well, it's extremely rare. I, would, I wouldn't say that it is completely unprecedented. Um, I, I don't remember one in recent years. Sometimes you'll get an institution that will issue a statement expressing regret for some incident in its past. For example, we saw that in the Catholic Church uh, clergy abuse scandal. The Boy Scouts of America issued similar statements. Uh, there have been other organizations that have done so. 
But I've also got to say, and this is one of the tragic elements of the environment that we're in, that the legal and financial risk of making such a, such a statement and accepting any responsibility at all is pretty significant. And most individuals and churches either remain silent or lawyer up, if I could use that expression, and, and uh, try to bind um, survivors and victims with non-disclosure agreements. The fact that Broadmoor Baptist Church has taken this step now and has even agreed to pay uh, if um, if the the survivor gets sued for a breach of the non-disclosure agreement is uh, you know a pretty unusual step uh, what will make it truly significant is if other churches follow suit um, in fact Broadmoor has also said that it would um, engage an independent third-party firm to investigate this incident and all the allegations Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, we'll have more on the $100 million ad campaign called He Gets Us. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after the short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Well, next up, the story we promised before the break, it's the story of the He Gets Us campaign. Yeah, it was launched earlier this year. Uh, the He Gets Us campaign features black and white online videos about Jesus as a rebel, an activist, or a host of a dinner party. And it's had, according to the organizers, more than 300 million views so far. Ministry Watch has written about this campaign in the past, and we've talked about it here on the podcast. Yeah, we have, uh, but I wanted to dig in a little bit deeper into the numbers. What did you find? Well, not as much as I would like, to be perfectly honest. The the campaign's funding is managed by an organization called The Signatory, which is a Christian foundation based in Kansas that helps uh, philanthro- manage the philanthropic affairs of high net worth givers, including the Hobby Lobby's Green family. But the structure of the He Gets Us campaign is complicated. He Gets Us is incorporated itself as He Gets Us LLC, which is a single-member LLC. And the Servant Foundation, which is a tax-exempt organization, is the sole member. That means that He Gets Us LLC donations are deductible as a donation to the Servant Foundation. Aren't all LLCs for-profit organizations? 
Well, not all, but but typically they are. There are a few states that do allow for LLCs to be nonprofit organizations. But in this case, it appears, in fact, I made some inquiries about that and couldn't really get um, an answer that was terribly satisfying about whether the LLC was for-profit or nonprofit. In my experience, um, that doesn't happen very often. So I'm going to guess at least temporarily, and I want to, want to be clear that it is just a guess that it is a for-profit organization. And about the only times that I have seen this complicated structure has been with when we've looked into televangelists and prosperity gospel preachers. These structures are often used as ways to hide payments or salaries that might otherwise have to be disclosed on Form 990s. So are you saying that that's what's happening with He Gets Us? No, I'm not saying that at all. But when I asked about the structure, again, I didn't get very satisfying answers. And because the ad campaign is so large, you know, Natasha, you've already mentioned $100 million. I asked how much money was actually going to ad buys and how much of it was going to vendors and consultants, people that actually, you know, for example, made the ads or designed them. Uh, in some way. Um, and, and I know there are some consultants that are working on this project as well. He gets us would not answer that question. Okay, so we've got a lot more questions than answers here. And now our reporter, Steve Raby, wrote a companion piece about an organization called Glue. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, Glue is one of the organizations that's involved in the, you know, He Gets Us a campaign. Uh, it isn't a ministry, but a for-profit company that's based in Boulder, Colorado, that was created in its words to provide the tools and support structures to churches, charities, and related service organizations so that they can more effectively help people grow. So how does that work? Well, the, the, the digital data that we generate, you and I generate, every time we visit a website or make an online purchase is captured by someone. And what Glue does is acquire that data. They buy it and they analyze it and um, they will attach it to the names and addresses in a huge data file that they have of folks that they know to be Christians. So glue or or maybe have identified that they're not Christians, that they're atheists or agnostic. Glue mines all this data and creates robust data files that it then sells that data to churches, to counseling centers, to ministries, and now apparently to he gets us as well. So by that, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is that Glue sells your personal data to churches, counseling centers, ministries, so that they can target you with faith-based messages. Glue's tech platform provides the digital infrastructure behind the He Gets Us campaign. When people see an ad, when they visit the campaign's website and provide their contact information, Glue will then capture that information and pass it along to one of the many churches that use the Glue platform, uh, which then may offer either free or subscription-based services. So Glue is getting a taste of that $100 million. Well, it would appear so, though, again, the He Gets Us campaign would not answer questions that we asked about where the money is going, how many of the vendors were getting money. But we did look at a 2021 profile in the Wall Street Journal that said that Glue works with about 30,000 churches, which is about 10% of the total of U.S. congregations, and has compiled data on some 245 million Americans. And as I said, Glue then analyzes the data searching for people who exhibit 
uh, signs of crisis, stress, anxiety, divorce, depression, substance abuse, or grief. Uh, it then targets those populations with web pages or other resources uh, for those people who are suffering. Uh, people who respond are connected to local churches, addiction recovery centers, and community service organizations. Well, Warren, I can definitely understand how some people might find this sort of thing a bit creepy, but I can also see how it could result in some good. Well, yeah, absolutely. And Glue says that it connects more than 300 people to churches every day. And in one case, a woman began her relationship with a local church by attending a grief support group that Glue had helped connect her with. And I should add that, uh, you know, for all of the qualms that you might have about Big Brother, Glue has really grown. Uh, it's a $36 million a year company, and it works with just a ton of the best-known ministries in the country, including Compassion International, Crew, Family Life, Alpha, Urban Ministries International, and MOPS, Mothers of preschoolers. Our next story involves two issues we've been covering consistently here at Ministry Watch, religious liberty and Christian higher education. Yeah, both of those stories are indeed in play in this next article. It's the story of Seattle Pacific University and its attempts to maintain its historical commitments to a biblical understanding of human sexuality. Now, before you get into this week's news, can you give us a little bit more background? Yeah, I sure can. You know, we've been covering SPU, Seattle Pacific University, for about a year. So this is, as you rightly identified, uh, Natasha, an ongoing unfolding story. And if you haven't been paying attention, here's kind of the, you know, what's been happening up till now in a nutshell. Seattle Pacific University is a Christian college uh, with historic ties to the Free Methodist Church, in part because it is in Seattle, thus the name, which is a very progressive city, and in part because the leadership of the school in years past um, has not been maybe as diligent as they could or should have been at maintaining their uh, historical distinctives. There's been a little bit of a liberal drift at that college. But when the board and senior leadership at SPU reaffirmed their commitment to Christian teaching regarding sexuality and its hiring practices in particular, and by that I mean that it would not uh, hire LGBTQ faculty, uh, the decision set off a series of events that included a no-confidence vote by the faculty in the board and LGBTQ advocates, including many students, staging a sit-in at the school. It also resulted in the resignation of the school's president in 2021. Now, SBU is having its hiring practices investigated by the Washington Attorney General. And the latest news is that SPU had filed a lawsuit seeking to end that investigation, saying that it had amounted to an attempt to intimidate the school into abandoning its Christian principles. But a federal judge on October 26 dismissed Seattle Pacific University's lawsuit that, as you said, had sought to stop the Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson's investigation into the school's hiring practices. Ferguson, in late July, confirmed that his office was investigating the university for potential illegal discrimination against people who identify as LGBTQ. And what this new decision means is that the attorney general can continue its investigation. Well, Election Day is next week, and we've seen a lot of campaigning in churches. 
Yeah, we have, though technically that's against the law, at least a certain kind of campaigning is, uh, and that is a campaigning uh, style in which you actually endorse candidates. We see it in both liberal and conservative churches. That's why even though Ministry Watch kind of shies away from politics in our coverage, we are publishing this week a long piece by ProPublica, one of our co-publishing partners, on how churches are, in fact, or at least in all probability, breaking the law by allowing candidates to be endorsed uh, within their services from their pulpit in some cases. And it's also a look at how the IRS is treating these cases, which is primarily just to look the other way. Now, it's a long piece, and I won't go into into a lot of depth here, except to say that it does concern the Johnson Amendment, which was passed in 1954 and prohibited candidate endorsements by nonprofit organizations. It became an important part of President Trump's message to evangelical voters in the last election cycle. He said that he would repeal the Johnson Amendment. So did he? Well, no, in fact, he didn't. Uh, there was not, in fact, any serious effort to repeal the Johnson Amendment during the Trump administration. But President Trump's criticism of the Johnson Amendment did erode the wall that historically existed between pulpits and political endorsements. And today we're seeing more political endorsements from the pulpit than ever, or at least they, it seems to be more. And that's, you know, part of what the story is about is that in this era of social media, are there really more or do there just seem to be more? Uh, historically, they've been coming mostly from liberal churches, but lately they've been coming more from conservative churches. Uh, and even though the Johnson Amendment remains the law of the land, a growing number of pastors seem to be simply disregarding it. Well, Warren, we need to take another break when we return our lightning round of ministry news of the week. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? What I have up first, Natasha, is Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. They confirmed to Baptist Press this past week that uh, the entity was initiating layoffs 
uh, a week after announcing steps to rec- rectify a financial uh, environment that they said could escalate to a crisis. A statement from the seminary said this, we recognize the disruption that this causes uh, for the staff members and their families. Uh, there is certainly no joy in having to make these decisions at this time and appropriate severance is being offered to affected employees. How many people will this affect? Well, the school didn't say, but it did say that the restructuring that this layoff is a part of um, includes a reduction of the operational and personnel budgets by at least 10%, and that would come out to about $3.6 million. Now, this follows a years-long evaluation of the seminary's 200-acre campus uh, footprint, and, uh, and the study was designed to uh, submit a plan for optimal use one of the things that was has already resulted is that a an apartment complex that is on the property, the B.H. Carroll uh, Park Apartments, was put on the market, and other parcels surrounding the main campus will likely also be put on the market in the near future. And you have news from your hometown in Charlotte. Yeah, I do. Um, in fact, it's kind of big news here locally. A 30,000 square foot $12 million archive and research center is about to open here in Charlotte at the Billy Graham Library on November the 8th, uh, a day after what would have been the 104th birthday of Billy Graham himself, the America's most famous evangelist. The facility will house all of Billy Graham's papers and artifacts in one location for the first time, consolidating um, material that had been on loan to the Billy Graham Center in at Wheaton College in the Chicago area and other items that were in Montreat, North Carolina at Graham's home office, plus materials from the ministry's former office in Minneapolis. So this is kind of a big deal to have all of this stuff in one location, a big deal for academics and researchers, but I think also um, a, a big deal for uh, a lot of folks who just visit the Billy Graham Center. Trip Advisor names the Billy Graham uh, Library uh, the number one destination for tourists in the city of Charlotte. But there, I should add, there's been kind of a joke um, in among some here in Charlotte that, that the only books in the Billy Graham Library were the books that were for sale in the bookstore, that there really weren't all of the papers and um, the vast library that were at the Billy Graham Center and elsewhere. So this is going to be kind of a cool uh, thing to get all of that material consolidated and in one place. We also note this week the passing of a significant evangelical leader. Yeah, the President Emeritus of Crew, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ International, Steve Douglas, died of complications from cancer last week. He was 77 years old. Douglas spent 53 years on Crew's staff, 19 of them as president. He signed on to the organization in 1969 uh, after finishing a degree from Harvard Business School. And Douglas had gone uh, to undergraduate uh, school at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So he was really headed off into a career, you know, in business and how finance before God got a hold of his life. And and uh, his leadership skills and management skills really came into play. I mean, crew was pretty small in those days relative to 
to today. And Douglas was instrumental. He worked directly with Bill Bright to help grow the organization. He helped manage the name change of uh, of the organization from Campus Crusade to Crew back in 2011. And today, more than 16,000 people uh, are on staff of crew in more than 200 countries. Douglas, by the way, also served on the boards of the National Religious Broadcasters, the National Association of Evangelicals, and Global Media Outreach. So he was truly an elder statesman of the evangelical movement. He survived by his wife, Judy, three children, and 10 grandchildren. And if I might add a point of personal privilege here, Natasha, I knew Steve pretty well. Um, we uh, had known each other for about 25 years. I had interviewed him for not this podcast, but for podcasts that I had done for other organizations in the past. I would often call him for advice and counsel. Um, it's a great loss to the entire world of evangelicalism, but especially to his family. And my thoughts and prayers are with Judy and his family. Who did Christina Darnell spotlight in her ministries making a difference column this week? She's got a number of folks uh, that she highlights, but I want to mention in particular Nazarene Compassionate Ministries and several Church of the Nazarene congregations in Puerto Rico who have mobilized to help provide care for thousands of people affected by uh, Hurricane Fiona, which swept through Puerto Rico back in September. I think this is a reminder that, you know, just because the hurricane has gone through and it happened a couple of months ago, that the needs do not end. Um, They've purchased 450 gift cards for vulnerable families. They've distributed water food, clothing, and other necessities. And in fact, one church in Aguada, uh, Puerto Rico, has cooked for hundreds of families for four straight days when the area's power went out. And by the way, I should mention that Nazarene Compassionate Ministries has one of the highest ratings that we give here at Ministry Watch. Uh, They get an A transparency grade and a donor confidence score of 92. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Yeah, a couple of items I'd like to mention, if I could. Uh, A final reminder that I'll be hosting a lunch uh, in Newport Beach, California, for Ministry Watch supporters on November the 15th. That's in a couple of weeks. If you live in L.A., especially in Orange County, just, you know, south of L.A., uh, you should have already gotten an email from me with more information. But if you want to make sure that you get that email, please email me and I will make sure you have all the details. All This lunch is, or rather this dinner is free. Uh, it's just our way of saying thank you for being a part of our work. And secondly, I want to mention that we've started something new here at Ministry Watch. We're doing a quarterly survey of the senior executives at the Ministry Watch 1000 Ministries. The first article based on that survey is up on the website now. And uh, I describe the survey more fully, how we go about it and what we're trying to accomplish in this week's Ministry Watch Extra episode, which we dropped a couple of days ago. So if you haven't heard that episode, please go back and check it out. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Scott Barkley, Jeremy Schwartz, Jessica Priest, Alejandra Molina, Steve Raby, Ann Steich, Jessica Adoralde, Christina Darnell, and Hugh Warren. Special thanks to The Baptist Press and ProPublica for providing materials for this week's podcast. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.